All right, welcome to the forum. Um, we had a change, which hopefully everybody um, saw in the announcements. Uh, we were going to have the youth present after their Martin Luther King conference, but there was a, um, a problem with that. Um, John uh, uh, James uh, Carroll has graciously stepped in, and he's going to give the second part of um, a program that, that he'd already started, um, his differences and divisions. Uh, we're a little short of time, so hopefully you know James well enough, and I'll just let him start. Thank you for the introduction. So last time I gave a forum, I don't know when that was, it was like, I think it was maybe two, two months ago, uh, I spoke on the similarities of religion. And I talked about typologies, so things that they all have in common and, and listing them is what we usually call a typological approach. For example, we can talk about the four stories people tell about death. Um, you know, there's an elixir that will uh, grant you eternal life or... Um, Maybe we're resurrected, or there's an immortal soul that will live on after death, or we can leave, live on in our legacies. This is the sort of thing. We also talked about uh, Joseph Campbell's monomyth idea, where he listed all the things that our stories we tell each other have in common. And then we had this uh, Lundquist typology, where he described the things that people do in their temples and how they build temples and how those things are similar across religious traditions. So after looking at all that, it might look like you know everybody's religions are doing about the same sort of thing. Uh, but today there's this wide, dizzying variety of religions. You can look at them uh, as an evolutionary tree uh, or a family tree where they start at the beginning where we're all the same religion and we divide and divide into separate religious groups that each do something slightly different, but all with a similar origin. The problem, of course, with this story is that it's, um, even this chart is very Christian-centered it was made by a non, non-Christian, non-believer, but because of our culture, it's Christianity-centered. It views the world as an evolution from something really primitive to something better and finally beyond religion itself to science, which will hopefully then take over all these others. You see that the, the way they view the world is very Christian uh, and Western-centered. The other uh, issue is this animism they have at the root is supposedly this parent religion that all religions evolved from or out of. And, of course, the problem with that is that they're back prehistory. It's really easy once you don't have any written records to pretend all the religions were, were, the, were one before they split up. And that's almost certainly untrue. There was probably divisions. There were divisions that those religious people thought were terribly, terribly important uh, to them that we don't know anything about. Uh, and so often, though, they look similar to us because they're our religions are different from them in ways that we think are important, and so we don't understand the differences that they may have seen as important. So there were differences in religious traditions from the beginning, I think, and so this evolution from a single religion is probably a false idea. Um, the other one that's really kind of, the other way to see differences in religion is, is from this famous uh, Buddhist and Hindu proverb about how uh, everybody is like a blind man, who walks up to an elephant and touches a different part of the elephant, right? So one person touches the tail, one person touches the side, one touches the leg, and each one comes up with something different about what they think God is, right? So someone touches the leg and he says, oh, God is like a tree. Someone touches the ear and says, God is like a flapping, you know, uh, rug. Someone touches the nose and says, well, God is kind of like a snake. 
Uh, God is like a rope if you touch the tail. And of course, all these people are wrong. God is like the elephant. Uh, This is a really famous proverb and kind of a way of looking at religions that is prominent today, especially in what we're going to call the perennial philosophers, those who who kind of try to see all religion as one. In other words, religions differ in how they describe God, but that's just because they're confused, right? There is one God, but all of them are touching God, right? So this is is a way to to try to remove religious conflict by saying, Everybody's touching God. We're just touching him differently, but we're all touching the same, the same being. God is just bigger than any one of our conceptions in any of these religious traditions. That's the elephant analogy. And that's one way to see religious traditions, uh, which leads, of course, to the perennial philosophy, which is there are hundreds of paths up the mountain, all leading to the same place. So this is another analogy like the, the elephant one. All leading to the same place. So it doesn't matter which path you take. The only person wasting his time is the one who runs around the mountain telling everyone that his or her path is wrong. Um, This is claimed to be a Hindu proverb. I tried to track it down. Of course, as soon as a Hindu lists it as a Hindu proverb on a meme, it becomes a Hindu proverb. So it's hard for me to to contradict the concept that it's a Hindu proverb. I have no idea if it's an ancient Hindu proverb or a a kind of a modern meme uh, Hindu proverb. But, but there it is. It's this, it's this second idea. So the elephant is the one that you'll hear often. The second one you will hear often is this idea of everyone traveling up the same mountain. We start in different places because we all have different cultures, different backgrounds. And we climb this mountain, but we're all climbing to the same top. And the question is, is that in any way an accurate description of the variations in religious belief? Of course, the people who, who make that claim... They have a good motive. What they really want is for us all to get along and stop flying airplanes into buildings and bombing places because our religious differences tell us to. And so this view springs out of good motives, but is it really descriptive of reality? Um, This is uh, a Swami uh, Sivananda, is a a Hindu yogi, I believe, uh, who who, uh, made this kind of common uh, phrasing of the mountain proverb Uh, more explicit. He said, the fundamentals or essentials of our religion are the same. There is difference only in the non-essentials. So what he's saying is that the foothills of the mountains, where we differ, because we all start in different places, remember this analogy, we climb this mountain, uh, we differ in the foothills, and the foothills are non-essentials. So he's not claiming that there are no differences. He's claiming that the differences, which are in the foothills, are unessential, and the essential parts are that which we agree. So there's things we have in common, what we talked about last class. There's things that are different, what we're going to talk about this class. And Swanee has decided to tell us all that the similarities are are what matters, the essentials, and the differences are the non-essentials. That is a prescriptive description of religion. He's telling religious people what is essential in their tradition instead of listening to their tradition and asking them what they think is essential. One is prescriptive, and one is descriptive. And if you have your own religious tradition, there is nothing wrong with being prescriptive because you're prescribing what your religion believes. But as soon as you do that, and it's not a bad thing to do, but as soon as you do that, you've left the land of comparative religion because you're no longer studying what other religions actually are. You're telling them what you think they should be. And you're making another mistake, and that is you're trying to describe other religions that way instead of describing your own. In other words, if you said, I believe that those things in my religious tradition, those things that are different are unessential, but the essential part of my religion is those same elements where all religions agree, that's a statement of your religious belief. 
and it's fine. If you turn it on someone else and say, your religion is the same as mine because we only disagree in the places where your religion thinks are unessential, you've, just, you've told someone else what they believe and what they should believe and what is essential in their tradition instead of listening to them, uh, which is problematic, I believe. Um, so, uh, for example, if you were to go to a fundamentalist Christian and ask him what he thinks of this mountain analogy, this is the answer you'll get. Um, Unlike many people today, Jesus did not teach that all religions in the world are simply different paths up the same mountain of truth that leads to God. Jesus could not have been more clear. He offers the only way to salvation. Now, whether we agree with this tradition or not, or whether we like this tradition, or whether it challenges us as universalists, or whether we would say as universalists that is not our tradition, if we're trying to understand what a Christian thinks about his religion, a fundamentalist Christian at least, or an evangelical Christian thinks about his religion, we have to take into account that they don't think that their religion differs in non-essentials. For them, the top of the mountain is the very place where they disagree or differ. The path to salvation, Jesus, Jesus alone, that's a difference, and it's a difference that they think is essential. And we can't tell them what their religion teaches. We have to listen when they tell us what their religion teaches. And that may be depressing to us because it's not what we want to hear. But it is also a description of reality that we must accept. This is a guy named Sweden. Or this is a, a, a guy named Coleman Glenn who posts a, on Pathos. Uh, he's a pre- pastor of a religion known as Swedenborgianism. It's a religion that had a, a, its own prophet in the 17th century who essentially claimed that all religions are just different paths to God, but they all do lead to God. That's what he taught. Uh, Swedenborg says, "I believe that a person will either end up in heaven or in hell." It is not confused to the core to hope that a Buddhist will be saved for their, from their sin and live forever in heaven. I know that's not what they expect or are aiming for. Now, notice the recognition. A Buddhist doesn't want to go to heaven because they don't believe in heaven. They don't want to be saved from their sins because they don't believe in sin. What they want is to end suffering and to end the cycle of rebirth in samsara, specifically not to live forever, but to end their individuality because they believe their individuality is an illusion anyway. And once you recognize that, you can end your individuality and be absorbed back into the universality of the universe instead of maintaining this illusion that you're a separate being. To be trapped forever in heaven as a separate being or soul is the Buddhist definition of hell, not, not heaven. Right? So they're different. And so for a Christian to come along and say, well, I believe all Buddhists will be saved too. Saved from what? Right? Um, but, but he is now acknowledging, and this is, this is what I think we have to do as a universalist, right? We might acknowledge that your goal isn't the same as ours, but uh, I know that's not what they expect or hoping for, but I believe that's where eternal happiness actually lies. And he's saying, I don't believe in this uh, nirvana escape from samsara. I believe happiness lies in eternal heaven. And then he's going to say, because I believe that's where happiness lies, I believe that even a Buddhist can achieve it. Now, that's what I'm trying to get at is that is an okay way to approach this idea of universalism. Because it doesn't prescribe to the Buddhist what they have to believe. It just says, given what I believe, I believe you'll be saved. Without instead saying, what you believe is the same as me. Or is a different path to the same goal as me. It's saying that I believe that your path is not going in the right direction, but I believe you'll get there anyway because God is good. Right? So, so that's a, a, an approach that doesn't prescribe quite so much condescension, even though it says, I believe I'm right and you're wrong. It, it at least doesn't say uh, you believe something you don't. 
it accepts other people's beliefs for what they are. Um, and so we, we chaff at that, though, don't we? Because we don't want to prescribe to people what to believe, but then to say, I believe I'm right and you're wrong, that's contradictory. And, it be, and it's kind of something that we believe would lead to contention, so we chafe at it as Unitarian Universalists. It's not something that, that we like, telling other people they're wrong or that we're right or, or whatnot. Um, but I believe that true diversity means that I can believe something and you can believe something and we can get along anyway. It's not saying we all believe the same thing when we don't and pretending the difference doesn't exist. That's not diversity. Diversity is saying we have different beliefs and we're going to find a way to coexist, to get along together, despite our differences, without instead prescribing that those differences don't actually exist or aren't important. We have important differences in our beliefs, and we're going to try to find a way to get along anyway. And so I'm, I'm I guess, suggesting a different goal uh, instead of a goal that, that says that the differences don't exist, I want a goal where we celebrate the differences, find value in the distinctions, and then find a way to coexist anyway despite them. So uh, maybe, maybe that's a difficult task and maybe one that can't be achieved, but I think it should be our, at least our goal. And it's a better goal than pretending differences don't exist. So what are the differences and how do we understand them? That's the next step. Now that we've said that we've got to admit the differences are real and that they matter to people who practice these religions, what are they? And how do we wrap our heads around them? Because if I'm not going to generalize, right, then the differences are each person's own experience of their own religion. Every single person's religious experience is unique, and I'm not going to generalize, so I'm just going to look at each person's religious experience and say, this is his experience, this is his experience, and I never generalize. We don't like generalization because it's a stereotype, right? We don't want a stereotype. The problem is if you don't do that, you don't see the forest for the trees. So at some point, you kind of have to step back and say, what do most Christians do? What do most Muslims do? What, what do most Unitarians do? I mean, you have to do that or else you don't, you don't kind of come to any understanding. Unfortunately, understanding sometimes involves generalization. So the, the solution, I believe, to the, to the danger of stereotyping and the goal of generalization and understanding is we generalize and then we recognize what we're doing. If we know what we're doing is a generalization, then we can recognize that there will be exceptions to every kind of generalization we put down, and we'll try to deal with individuals on an individual lesson, uh, basis while dealing with a religious tradition uh, and still understanding what kind of they do on average. So I'm talking about averages and general and, and things. Once we want to generalize, we want to know what to generalize you know, too. So... There are things religions do. In fact, um, there are what I'm going to call, and, and was called before me, I'm not uh, you know, the inventor of this idea, but there are what we're going to call the seven dimensions of religious belief. The first of, of religion, not religious belief, I'm sorry. I need to stop saying that. Religious belief is a Western idea because it's a Western concept to see religion as a belief. Right? So there are plenty of Buddhists who do not believe in God. But they are Buddhists. There's Confucians who do not believe in God, and, and yet they are religious. So religion isn't about belief, and yet we call it religious belief. Religion is about more than just what you believe. It's also about what you do. So, for example, ritual. Religions have rituals. So one of the ways to understand the differences in religion is to ask, what rituals do they perform? And also, what emphasis does that religious practice have in ritual? For example, what emphasis does the Unitarian Universalist have in ritual? 
We have rituals. But if we compare ourselves to the Orthodox Christian tradition, we have a much lower emphasis in ritual than they do. So we can ask two questions when we start dealing with each of these dimensions. How important is the dimension to the religion? And that will illustrate distinctions, like the distinction between the low church Christian tradition and the high church Christian tradition, or the Unitarian versus Orthodox. We have a different emphasis in ritual. And then you can ask what the rituals are that they perform and why do they perform them. Uh, You could also talk about their narrative dimension. For example, the Jewish tradition is almost exclusively, not exclusively, almost, but it is they spend a great percent of their effort in their religious tradition telling the story. The point of their religion is to tell the story of who they are as a people and to make sure that story is passed from generation to generation. And that's one of the central elements of Judaism. It is not one of the central elements of Unitarian Universalism. Although we tell our own history, we don't spend the same emphasis on it. So no one has zero emphasis in this dimension. It's just that we don't put the same emphasis on the narrative dimension that the Jews do. In fact, neither do the Muslims or the Christians, although each of them have a narrative. It's not as central to their tradition as it is in Judaism. And then there's the experimental experiential dimension. What I mean by that is how important is it in the religious tradition to do things that create a certain mental state? And how important is having that mental state in that religious tradition? So, for example, if you're a Muslim the experiential tradition uh, dimension is fairly low for an average Muslim, unless you're a Sufi. In fact, that is what makes a Sufi almost exclusively different from a regular Muslim, is that a Sufi is almost all about the experience of God, whereas a Muslim has other ritual and ethical dimensions that that produce their submission to God versus this experiential tradition. Buddhism spends a great deal of time and effort, for example, uh, trying to teach meditative techniques that are designed to have create a certain experience. In this case, not an experience of God, but an experience that will limit your, will lessen and limit your suffering. So there's a great deal of time spent on techniques, mental techniques, to create a certain experience. So that's the experiential dimension. Um, there's also an institutional and communal dimension. This is one of the things the Unitarians do well. This is one of the things that the Mormons do well. In other words, we, we're going to focus on finding a way to build a community of people, either an organized community or an unorganized community, but we're trying to connect with each other through our religious beliefs and traditions. And so that's something, for example, that the Yoruba do or the Confucians do. But the Taoists almost don't, and in fact, that difference is one of the main differences between the Taoists. For the Taoists, society has imposed upon us a limit that makes us not who we are, who we really are at our core. So we need to break free from our social conventions and break free from the conventions imposed upon us by society. Whereas a Confucian would say, when we're alone, we're lost. And so by having social conventions and etiquettes, we build communities that come together and make us more than who we each are individually. And those are one of the central distinctions between a Confucius and, say, a Taoist. Um, And it has to do with how they approach this communal institutional dimension in their religious tradition. Of course, then there's the ethical legal tradition. Again, the Jewish tradition is highly legalistic. Uh, The Unitarian tradition is highly ethical. Our seven principles are not statements of theological belief, but are statements of ethical beliefs and and traditions. So there's the ethical dimension, which essentially is, how does this religion teach you to get along with your neighbor? 
So again, as before, you can ask the question, how does the religion do that, and what emphasis does the religion place on this dimension of how to get along and what, how, what ethics we should live by? And then, of course, there's the doctrinal dimension. Uh, this is what the religion says about divinity or about the nature of reality, etc. Um, Unitarian, and this is a, where, for a Christian, a, a creed would come in. Uh, there is a tendency in the West, especially among critics of religion, to boil all religion down to this one dimension and ignore the others. But the existence of certain religious traditions, not least our own, shows the lie of the, of the hyper-focus on the doctrinal. Our religion has intentionally said we have no doctrinal dimension. Love is the doctrine of this church. And we've taken our doctrinal dimension and pushed it up into the ethical dimension. And we've done so intentionally. Uh, Christianity, which is, is a, where our culture comes from, has a hard time defining that as a religion. I mean, for us, religion is, is a belief, and that's because of Christianity. And because we grew up in a Christian tradition where Christianity is hyper-focused on doctrinal. So one of the differences between Christianity and other traditions is Christianity is hyper-focused on the doctrinal. And the reason it's hyper-focused on the doctrinal is because their problem is sin. Their solution is belief in Christ. So if you're saved from the human problem, and we'll talk more about the human problem later, but if you're saved from the human problem through belief in a certain thing, then you can imagine that the tradition would tend to gravitate towards understanding how belief in a certain thing what thing should you believe in? And how should you believe it? And, and, and if, you, if you believe in it wrong, does it really still generate salvation? And so that creates a natural tendency towards the doctrinal and the theological in Christianity that does not exist, for example, in Buddhism. So Buddhism is, Buddhism is definitely a religion. And yet when asked doctrinal questions, the Buddha usually refused to answer because his point was they were a distraction from figuring out how to have the experience of liberation that will reduce suffering. And let's stop arguing about the doctrinal because for him, doctrine didn't matter in the least. And so he would often intentionally eschew the doctrinal approach, very much as Unitarians do. And so, again, our culture has, has misunderstood religion because our culture has, under, has assumed that religion is all about the doctrine and the theology. And it's not. It's about what you do, the rituals you perform, the stories you tell, the experiences you create, etc. And, of course, the final, the final element is the material. And is what, is, what does the religion do to try to make the world better in this world? The material dimension is a way to see differences in terms of how focused is the religious tradition on saving you or creating a better afterlife versus how focused is the religion on creating a better this life. So, for example, Mormonism skews towards the material and away from the next life compared to its Christian counterparts. Um, let me think, uh, Unitarian Universalism doesn't even know if we have an afterlife, and, and that would be a doctrinal question anyway, and so we're not going to talk about it, and so we are going to talk about both ethics, but with the goal of building a better this life. Uh, Buddhism uh, is about ending samsara, and in that sense, it's about what happens after you die, but it's also about ending samsara by... Uh, ending your own suffering here and now. So it tends to be somewhere closer to the center, but, but skewed again towards the material. Christianity, and especially Islam, are skewed towards the next life over this life uh, compared to those other traditions. Confucianism and Taoism are almost entirely focused 
on this life, although Taoism has a tradition of eternal life, of alchemy, seeking eternal life through, through um, creating the elixir, etc. But even so, that's still a focus on this life kind of over the next. And so you can see the differences between Christianity and Taoism and Confucianism in terms of where they live on this continuum of material tradition. This lets you sort of, this, was, this uh, approach was created by a guy named uh, Ninian Smart. I think I said that right, Ninian Smart, who proposed these seven elements. Now, this is very much like a, um, a typology, very much like what I did when I talked about the similarities, right? They all talk about the tree of life. They all talk about you know, the garden. They all talk about those are things that religions tend to have in common. And here I've created a bunch of dimensions. It has the same caveats and potential downfalls, and that is once you, start ha- once you have a hammer, everything starts looking like a nail. The typologies were hammers for understanding the similarity. This is a hammer for understanding the differences, putting them on continuous. And the problem, of course, is that once you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And we start seeing everything in terms of this topology, and we might misunderstand. And so that's a danger in this, in this approach. As a teacher, however, I'm going to say the same thing I said about the typological approach. Um, if you just dive into the specifics, people don't see the point, and they don't see where they're going, and they don't see the broader picture. And so sometimes having a list like this helps you get the broader picture, but it should be a starting place, not an ending place. You start with this picture, and then you start recognizing how you know, your, neat, your neat little buckets you've created don't really hold all the water that, that any one religious tradition might be. But you start here. So it's all a, this way of looking at it is all about what does the religion emphasize, and how does it emphasize it within the dimensions of religious experience. It also has the advantage of letting you ask questions like, what is a religion, and understand why that question is difficult, right? For a religion that emphasizes the doctrinal, Buddhism isn't even a religion. It's a philosophy. Is communism a religion? Well, it depends. How about, how about American uh, democracy? We certainly have rituals. We saw them yesterday, or the day before, I mean, right? So we have ritual, and we have tradition, and we have beliefs, and, and to what extent do other things that humans do, to what extent do they look like a religion. And, of course, the question that, that for an example of a contentious version of this question is, is atheism a religion, right? And so religious people like to say, well, atheism is just one more religion, and it's religion like any other, and there's no reason to suppose it's, it's you know, preeminent. And atheists really itch. They don't like that. that that's horrible. How can you, because religion is the problem. How can you say I'm a religion, right? And if we can back off of that for a minute and instead just ask, to what extent does your practice do these seven things? Then we can say, you are like a religion in this way, you are unlike a religion in that way, and we can start seeing you know, where these things fit together. So, for example, atheism is an incredibly doctrinal-centered theology in the, in the sense that it's a theological assessment of what is true. There is no God, and religion is the source of problems I shouldn't have said atheism, should I? I should have said something like the new atheists, right? There's lots of atheists who just don't believe in God and go happily about their life. Many of them would never say that religion is the source of all problems. Many of them are in this room practicing a religion, and yet they don't believe in God. But, but there are certain elements. So, so if we divide this up, there's, there's sects of atheists, and some of them are very communal. 
their, their online communities and they try to form institutions and, and groups. Um, they have an ethical legal code. Um, they're very interested in doctrine, specifically what is true is there is not a God, etc. So without entering into that debate of whether it's a religion, now we can just ask much more interesting and useful questions, which is how does atheism fit on these dimensions and how does communism fit on these dimensions or how does capitalism fit on these dimensions or any other uh, kind of group we want to talk about in both a believing group, uh, what they believe in, and practicing group, what they do. Okay. So, the, you know, I, I'm making these numbers up, right? But, but you can see how you could use this sort of thing. Confucianism, highly, ex, uh, its experiential dimension is high. Its material dimension, I'm sorry, Buddhism, its experiential dimension is high. Its material dimension is high. It's much more material, this worldly, as composed to Confucianism, which has a low emphasis in the experiential, lower, but, a, but again, a high emphasis in the material. You get Islam and Christianity down in the um, more next worldly version versus this worldly. So they're lower on this graph versus higher. Um, and I can also look at the differences between Christian groups. For example, Pentecostals are almost entirely experiential. They have a something they do, they get together and they sing and they have healing and they raise their hands. And, and the purpose of that set of things they do is to create a certain experience in them. In fact, they create a certain mental state that's almost a trance in which they then start to speak in tongues, etc. And, and their practice is about generating that experience. Uh, you could do the same with the Yoruba, African religion. They dance and they stomp and they, they have these different rituals whose point is to create this experience of being, being um, possessed by the Orishas. Uh, and then, of course, the, the you can put the uh, Orthodox on the opposite dimension, right? They have a, a high emphasis in ritual, but a lower emphasis in the experiential. So again, you can see you can you can understand the differences in these dimensions, and it's helpful. Okay, this one was suggested by Stephen Prothero, uh, who is a, a professor of religious um, uh, practice. I don't remember at which school. This book was actually rep recommended by John Cullinan. He recently gave a sermon on this topic at church. I don't know how many of you remember this sermon. But um, he based that on this book, and he recommended that, that we read it and that I read it, and I read it. It was great. Um, and Prothero says one of the other ways you can see the differences in religious traditions is by asking, what do they think the problem is? What do they think the solution is? What techniques do they use to achieve the solution, and what are their exemplars? So this is another um, way of seeing the differences, similar to the one we just had. It's a, like, like the other one. It's also a typology, right? So I can do this for Christianity. What is the problem? Sin. What is the solution? Salvation. How is the solution achieved? Well, Jesus died for us. That's what he did for us. But then what do we do? Well, we have some combination of faith and works. And how you balance that combination will be the distinguishing factor between several different Christian traditions. They are distinguished by that balance. And uh, their exemplars are Christ, if you're, if, you're Christian, if you're a Protestant, and the saints, if you're Christ and the saints, if you're a Catholic, and uh, those are their and biblical figures, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Buddhism, what is the problem? It's very different, right? Sin, what's sin? I don't care about sin. I care about uh, skillful and unskillful living, but I just want to end suffering, right? And the solution is enlightenment. Uh, the techniques are the eightfold path. 
And the examples are the Buddha, the Arats, and the Bodhisattvas, and the Lamas, etc., depending on your Buddhist tradition. Again, this, this really oversimplifies things, doesn't it? But by oversimplifying, we also sometimes get at the heart of things. In this case, what is really this tradition about? What do they really want out of life? Well, they, the Hindus want to end samsara. Uh, by the way, the Buddhists do too, right? But the, for the Buddhists, ending samsara is about ending suffering. For the, for the Hindus, it's about ending this cycle of rebirth. So there's a slight different emphasis there, but it's similar. shouldn't surprise us. Buddhism came out of Hinduism. It's almost its child. Uh, the solution is devotion. And again, then that solution, by the way, depends on the Hindu um, denomination. There's denominations of Hinduism, and I hate to use the denomination term, but I don't know how else to describe it, for which that is not the solution. Right? But um, techniques, ritual, prayer, yoga, and the examples are the avatar, the gurus, etc. Judaism, the problem is essentially exile. Now, that exile was caused, they have different descriptions of the cause of the exile, but the problem is exile. Uh, God exiled from the temple, the, the Shekinah, and, and God separated if you want to get into mystical Judaism. But in each of these cases, there's some sort of exile going on. The stories of exile go out throughout the Bible, from Abraham wandering in a strange land, looking for a home, etc. So the problem is exile. The solution is the return. And the techniques are the commandments, studying the Torah, the law, the ritual, etc. And there are exemplars, of course, the prophets and the rabbis. I can do the same thing for Confucianism, who sees the problem as chaos, for Taoism, who sees the problem as artificiality. And so, of course, the solution is either society or individuality, almost opposite goals. Uh, in Yoruba, we forget who we are. They believe in reincarnation as well, but the problem is before we were born, we had a goal in life, uh, something we came to earth to do, and we've forgotten what it is. And the solution is to have a diviner tell us what we have forgotten, what our real path in life is, uh, which reminds me almost of a Mormon approach of, you know, we, had, we lived before we were born, and uh, what we're really missing is uh, knowing what our job in life is, and, and there's a technique called a patriarchal blessing, which is supposed to tell you that. This is very much what the Yoruba are doing. And you can even put the new atheists up here, right? The problem is religion. So the solution is reason. Because, of course, once we're all reasonable, we'll stop going to church, despite the fact that we're all here. Uh, and most of us, a large percentage of us are atheists. Uh, science and reason is the technique for getting at that. And then, of course, they'll hold up uh, famous scientists as their uh, exemplars. Voltaire. But then they also start holding up... Uh, other famous scientists who would object to being held there since they're deeply religious. Um, uh, I'm trying to think of, uh, of some of my, my best examples, but um, uh, uh, Newton, for example, right, did what he did because of his religious convictions. And yet he would be an um, example of using reason to understand the world instead of dogma um, and, and uh, uh, superstition. Okay, so if we were going to reject the mountain climbing example and find something better, um, this is kind of what I would propose. Um, all religions start at the same fountainhead. Now, normally, religion, uh, normally rivers flow together, but when you hit a delta, rivers flow apart, and then they meander back together and they flow apart again. That's almost like what religions have done in the past. They've flown apart, they've meandered, they've come back together, they've merged, they've split. But they all start with one observation. Something is wrong. 
right? Life isn't what we want it to be. Something is wrong. It just doesn't feel right. We're not happy. We are not saved. We are something. Something is wrong. And then they start diverging immediately when they start asking, what is wrong? If I'm a Muslim, what is wrong is pride. We think that we are enough in and of ourselves, and we don't recognize that God, the creator of all, is the source of all, and so therefore we should give all of our attention to him. But when we pridefully stand up ourselves and try to become a law unto ourselves, we mess up the world. So the world is messed up because of pride, and the solution is submission to God. And then they ritually submit, that's their prayer, and they bow to, the, to put their forehead against the ground and they submit and bow. It's a central ritual, it's a central doctrinal, it's a central ethical concern. Submission is the solution to a problem created by pride. And Jesus is the solution to a problem created by sin because Jesus allows the penalty for sin to be paid by someone else so we can be forgiven. And belief is the way to get. So we immediately diverge when we start talking about what is wrong. And then we diverge again when we start talking about how to solve the problem once we decide what is wrong. And that's, a, I think, a much better way to see religion is, is we all share this human concept that something's wrong. That's what we all have in common. But we differ on what, the, what it, we think is wrong. We differ on how to solve the problem and, and what techniques should be used to implement the solution. So I'm going to propose, and then I'm done, uh, a list of, compar- of principles. If you're going to study other religions, which is what we're going to do, um, we have one more lecture that was supposed to be uh, last Friday and it was put off. But we have one more lecture on Unitarian Universalist history, and then I'm going to start over, and I'm going to consider these lectures my introduction. I'm not going to redo the introduction, but I'm going to then start with ancient religions. We're going to tar- start with Egypt Mesopotamia, and we'll start working through the ancient religions and we'll work our way up to the modern religions. And as we do that, I want to propose a few principles of um, how to do this comparative religion thing. First, seek descriptive, not prescriptive understanding. Don't tell the religions what they have to believe or what they are or what they should be. Try to understand them for what they are. Describe them. Explore the similarities. Explore the differences. Because that's a good place to start. What matters, one of the best ways to understand a religion is to understand how it's like those around it and how it's different from those around it. And you'll often get at the heart of it that way. Um, And then once you do that, understand the exceptions. Because there are almost always exceptions. So first get the general understanding, then recognize that you've overgeneralized and that there are exceptions and try to know what some of those are. And then try not to study so you can pat yourself on the back. Right? Try to understand their tradition because you're trying to learn something, not so that you can try to figure out why you're better than them. And then finally, leave room for sacred envy. Um, there was an Episcopal priest, and I cannot for the life of me figure out his name, and I need to because I use this term all the time, but he coined the idea. And he said it was the core concept of interfaith dialogue. And he says this, sacred envy for him doesn't mean I agree with you. It doesn't mean I even I want to do what you're doing because I may believe that there are doctrinal reasons that what you're doing is flawed. But dang it, I envy you because that belief, that practice, that whatever it is, I can see how it's beautiful in your life, how it blesses your life, how it makes you happy. And I can envy that and learn something from that envy without agreement. 
The example he was actually using was he was talking to a bunch of Mormons, and he's an Episcopal, and he talked about baptism for the dead. And he says, I don't agree with baptism for the dead. I think it's theologically flawed. It's a Mormon practice. But dang it, I really envy the way that allows Mormons to kind of both think, think of God as a God who is consistent in his list of things you have to do, but also merciful and lets everyone be saved at the same time. That's just great. I love it. I don't agree with it. I think it's stupid, but I love it, right? And, and sacred envy, I think that's just this, this, the greatest principle, that if we can approach somebody else and say, I don't agree with you, I think you're wrong, but you know what? I can see how neat that is to you, and, and I can even envy it a little bit. Try to leave room for sacred envy. And then the final element is explore the human condition. Because if I'm right about this river diverting Each religion has something important to say, whether they're right about their theology or wrong, whether they're right or wrong about their belief in God. Each of them has something useful to say about why human life is is somehow lacking. And they have something useful to say about ways we might go about fixing it. And I think that is one of the most exciting elements of studying other people's faiths, is trying to see that distinction. What is the problem what is your solution to that problem? And how does that solution work in your life? And does it? And so that's what I'm hoping we're going to get out of this next kind of round of, of my comparative religion class that we'll teach on Fridays, a third Friday of the month at 6.30 here, if you'd like to come. So I, I hope that was a sufficient uh, fill-in for, um, for on short notice. And uh, I'm out of time. Uh, do I? You'll, I'll let you choose whether I've got time for questions or or not. And okay, we are out of time. I talk too long. Which isn't surprising to anyone who knows me. So let's uh, let's go out back and we can chat if you have questions or comments. So thank you. Okay. Uh, let me remind you 